So let us begin. On the Senate floor Wednesday, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff argued on behalf of House Democrats that President Trump should be convicted. His arguments included a call for Senate Republicans to vote to allow key witnesses to be called to testify and new evidence and documents to be released. The full and complete story is within your power to request. Talk of witnesses and evidence has been circulating for weeks as senators have fought over the terms of the trial. Republicans insist that Trump has been denied due process, a phrase borrowed from criminal court proceedings. There isn't a witness that can be called that can fix this process. There isn't a witness on either side that you can call that can inject um, fairness and due process into a process that had none. And Democrats have argued that Americans expect witnesses and documents as part of a proceeding called a trial. And that's all that we're asking for today, is to make sure that we give the American people the trial that they expect. But there are important distinctions between a criminal trial and a Senate trial, places where the courtroom analogy falls short and sometimes where quirky Senate rules take over. And yet, despite the differences, there's been some intersection in this impeachment saga between the court system and the impeachment process. Last year's House inquiry led to a bunch of subpoenas for testimony and documents from people close to the White House. Former White House counsel Don McGahn has defied Congress by skipping a major congressional hearing. Subpoenas that found their way to court and remain entangled in court battles. That leaves Trump fighting impeachment-related battles in two arenas. One, the court system, and two, the Senate. And his respective lawyers in each of those arenas are taking different and often conflicting approaches to those battles. Those contradictions could undermine Trump in the courts. And the outcome of these cases could have real significance for the future of presidential power. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. To unpack all of this, I needed a legal affairs correspondent. I turned to The Post's Anne Marima. So throughout the entire impeachment process, there have been concerns raised across the aisle about the legitimacy of the process, what exactly a Senate trial should look like, and how closely that should mirror a criminal trial. Many members of Congress talk about wanting evidence. A trial without all the relevant evidence is not a fair trial. Witnesses. So the debate over whether or not to have witnesses continues to rage. Things that we are familiar with from criminal trials. So before we get into the details, let's answer this basic question. Is a Senate trial intended to or even supposed to match a criminal trial in how it's designed and how it works? Right. It's called a Senate trial, but the analogies are limited. As you know, it's a political process. So the constitutional rights that apply when someone is a criminal defendant in a courtroom are very different when it comes to questions about convicting the president and removing him from office. So when we make the comparison between a criminal trial and a Senate impeachment trial, the analogy, as we all know by now, is that the senators are the jurors. Yet a juror in a criminal trial who expresses bias would potentially face consequences. But in an impeachment trial, are there any such enforceable rules against expressing bias? No. Again, it's a political process. And a lot of legal experts have joked that if any of these 100 senators were in the jury pool of prospective jurors in a criminal trial in a courtroom, they would immediately be struck and be not able to sit on the jury. You have four Democratic senators running against 
President Trump running to be the person to replace him. And then you have some of the Republican senators who have close relationships with the president. You have Mitch McConnell, who's essentially the jury foreman, has already said there's zero chance of conviction. Uh, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. There's zero chance the president obviously would be removed from office, and I'm hoping we'll have no defections at all. A regular criminal trial, um, jurors are admonished not to even read the newspaper or go online and read the news. Here you have the senators, every time there's a break in the action, going out and becoming part of the news. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a sense, the real jurors here, since we know what the outcome is likely to be, um, are the American voters. A lot of this is for the American people watching to decide what they think and um, how they'll vote in the upcoming election. So ultimately, the answer to the can he do that question might come down to the American people. For sure, in this case. Another piece that seems like a stark difference is this coordination that we've seen between senators and the White House. If our criminal justice system foresaw these conflicts and accounted for them in the rules and the laws, why wouldn't the Senate have done the same in establishing rules and precedent for the Senate impeachment trial? Because the what's at stake is very different. In a criminal trial, it's about the defendant um, has constitutional rights, for instance, to a lawyer against self-incrimination, because what's at stake for the criminal defendant is going to prison, possibly a death sentence, losing liberty and property. Here, again, it's a political process. The president could lose his job and his power, and that's important, um, but it's not meant to be the same process. We've talked about on this show how Chief Justice Roberts is serving in this judge-like capacity. But what unique kinds of challenges does he face in the Senate trial as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, a body that he deeply believes should be apolitical? That's right. He's an institutionalist, very cautious by nature, talks a lot about the importance of the court being independent and impartial. So the Senate process does give him some power. He can make rulings about evidence and witnesses, but he can also throw those questions out to the senators. And he's very unlikely to want to take sides or to be seen as political. So what you see is he's more of a presiding officer, making sure things run on time. But we don't expect that he will get involved in making substantive calls that could be seen as affecting the outcome one way or the other. What have we seen him do thus far that was maybe unexpected? Already he's played a more active role than Chief Justice Rehnquist did, presiding over Bill Clinton's impeachment trial in 1999. On the very first night um, of the active trial, you saw Justice Roberts close the proceedings by admonishing both the House managers, Democrats, and the the Republican um, senators and defense team for President Trump. Uh, To remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. In the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging, and the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used. I don't think we need to aspire to that highest standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should remember where they are. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. 
In some ways, Justice Roberts admonishing the Democrats and Republicans over decorum really highlights the way that the Senate proceedings have a different tone than a courtroom and how the Senate has its own set of these rules and quirky rituals. I think anyone who's been following this trial by now knows that the senators are allowed to drink only water and strangely milk at the impeachment trial. But there's also limited press access in the chamber. There's no electronics allowed. There's no food allowed. Do criminal trials have their own version of these quirky rituals? They do. In a Senate, in a regular courtroom trial, every day the judge starts and ends the day by reminding jurors um, that they are not to speak to anyone about the deliberations, not to their spouses, not to each other, uh, that they aren't to even say hello to the lawyers when they see them in the hallway or the courtroom cafeteria. So that's another way that this is so much different. Jurors at a regular trial could not stand up and go gossip with each other, even stretch their legs, unless the judge said this is a break in the action. So it's it's very different. One other difference before we belabor this point between a criminal trial and a Senate impeachment trial is how the senators actually make the final decision on whether to convict or acquit. We've all watched enough procedural dramas to know that a defendant has to be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Are senators faced with that same standard here? They're not. There's a Congressional Research Service report that was very helpful that says there's been debates over the years with Clinton's impeachment trial about what the standard for finding uh, the president guilty and convicting in this case should be. But at the end of the day, it's a political process, and it comes down to historically what in each individual senator's mind that standard should be if it's been proved to their satisfaction. Um, And as you know, the vote is two-thirds of the present senators uh, to convict. So despite these differences, there has been some intersection in this whole impeachment saga between the court system and the impeachment system. The House inquiry last year led to a whole bunch of subpoenas for testimony and documents from people who are close to the White House. And then the White House pushed back, leading several of those fights to end up in the courts. Can you just briefly refresh us on which of those cases remain unresolved in the courts? One of the main ones we're waiting on is a congressional subpoena for former White House counsel Don McGahn. Tensions are rising again between House Democrats and the White House, with President Trump saying he will not let former White House counsel Don McGahn testify to Congress. President Trump blocked his testimony and said there's absolute testimonial immunity. A district court judge has said, no, that's that's not right. That doesn't exist, that he has to show up in response to the subpoena and then can object for various privileged reasons. But that case is still at the appeals court. It was heard right after the new year. We're waiting for a three-judge panel of the federal appeals court in Washington to say whether or not McGahn has to comply with that subpoena. Are there any other cases in the court? Yes. There's another one about evidence. This is from uh, Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. The House would also like to get access to some of the still secret grand jury evidence. And then another panel of the same court in Washington also heard that case on January 3rd. And we're waiting for them to say whether or not the Justice Department has to hand over that material to the House. So these things are moving through the court system, but we haven't seen any final decisions. That's right. So... Trump's Justice Department, just so that I understand this, they defend the position of the White House in these cases? Yes, this is the Trump administration Justice Department was defending against Trump administration officials having to comply with these subpoenas. Uh, They are making that case in court. And they're separate from the legal team defending Trump in the impeachment trial? That's right. There's a private team of lawyers and also White House counsel Pat Cipollone who are representing uh, President Trump in the Senate impeachment trial. Are impeachment trial lawyers the president's personal lawyers on his own retainer, or are they employed by the 
government to defend the president. So there's both his private attorneys and also the White House counsel, White House lawyers working together to defend President Trump. So a government body is defending the president to some extent? That's right. And that there's a long history of that, that they are defending the president in his official role as president. That was what happened for Bill Clinton as well. Okay, so now that we've got that covered, what position has the Justice Department taken in these ongoing legal battles? So the Justice Department has told the court repeatedly that they should stay out of what they're calling a political food fight between Congress and the White House and that the courts don't have a role there. These are political disputes that the court should not be taking sides here and should let them work it out on their own. And that's very different than what Trump's lawyers are arguing in the Senate trial. Well, that was interesting. We've only heard from them on one day. And Pat Cipollone and Jay Sekulow made a big point of saying that the House had rushed this process Um, that we have the federal courts, that's what they're there for, that they should let the court and judicial review take place first about these subpoenas before going to impeachment. So essentially, if I can summarize this, you're saying that Trump's impeachment lawyers are trying to block witnesses and evidence by suggesting that the courts should be the ones to decide on those matters. And then meanwhile, in the courts, Trump's lawyers are arguing that it's not the court's place to decide on things like this. So that's pretty confusing. Why are Trump's impeachment lawyers going this route? Well, they are trying to block uh, witnesses and new evidence from being admitted, but it potentially undercuts what the Justice Department lawyers have been saying in court, which is quite the opposite, that the courts have no role. The Justice Department would say that there are consistent arguments that if the House is insisting that there is judicial review, they have to wait and let it play out before going to impeachment. But people like Adam Schiff say, we can't wait, we can't delay, as we see the courts take a long time to sort out these issues. Is it unusual that you might see one defendant but two different legal teams arguing conflicting strategies? Well, we've only had this happen uh, two other times in our history. I think what I'll be watching for is to see how consistent the arguments his Senate trial lawyers are with those being made by the Justice Department. But in reality, they have two different jobs. Trump's Senate defense team is part of a political process. They'll be talking about why this is unfair um, and that narrative. And the Justice Department lawyers are really arguing about a body of precedent and cases that have existed over time and trying to defend him from more of a legal position on the Constitution and these legal questions. So how much is it a problem then that these strategies from his lawyers contradict? Will it have consequences for the, the Senate trial or in the courtroom? Yeah, we don't know yet. It's possible that the appeals court could ask the lawyers for the House and from the Justice Department, how does this position that President Trump's Senate lawyers, Senate trial lawyers, how has the position they've taken affect what you've said in court? But we don't know yet. We haven't heard from them. What's the best possible outcome for Trump's various legal parties? That the issue is not resolved in court anytime soon. And the worst? That the rule on McGahn and his subpoena and the Mueller subpoena while this is taking place. So that would come through in time to be part of the Senate trial. Well, even if it were appealed, it would be a headline and part of the conversation. And I'm sure that the House managers would bring that up on the floor and that that would become part of the conversation. Ultimately, does Trump's legal strategy in the courts here of of fighting Congress on things like subpoenas and evidence and witnesses set some sort of precedent for future presidents to take when they disagree with what Congress is requesting of them? Absolutely. That's why these cases matter for future lawmakers and future presidents. The struggle and separation of powers will determine 
to what extent sitting presidents have to turn over financial information, make top advisors available for Congress to perform their oversight role. So these are the important questions that will um, determine how our government operates going forward. All right. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. The Senate impeachment trial of President Trump continued Thursday, with the House managers delivering arguments focused on Trump's alleged abuse of power. We'll keep you updated here on Can He Do That with continuing deep dives on the major news and presidential power themes that emerge from the trial. For morning briefings on all that happened in the Senate the day before, tune into another one of The Post's podcasts, The Daily 202's Big Idea with James Homan. For daily takeaways and major moments from the Senate impeachment trial, listen to The Post's daily news podcast, Post Reports. Or if you prefer it all in one place, subscribe to The Post's Impeachment Updates podcast feed, where you'll get the latest impeachment news from all three shows. Can he do that? Post Reports and The Daily 202's Big Idea. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the tenacious Carol Alderman with help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Lauren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Now. 